Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Now that we know who the church is and what story it lives in, let's now turn to Acts 1 to see how the people of God act out their role in that story. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 this morning. And uh, we are in the middle of a series we started on the church uh, called Life Together, Life In and Around and For Jesus. And we have been taking a hard look at what the church is. And over the last few weeks, we've made this, uh, this chart, if you will, that story on the next slide determines identity, and identity determines mission, determines actions. So everything that you and I do comes from who we think we are, and the only place we can actually make a, a definitive statement about who we think we are has to come from a bigger context, from the context of a story. And so, if we are going to actually be the church that Jesus Christ has created through His own blood and has brought all people together in Him for the sake of His mission... We need to come and ask the question, who is the church? And that's what we did a couple weeks ago. We defined the church, the identity of the church. Number one on the next screen says, number one, it is a people. Okay? It's not on the next screen. It's in two slides, I think. But it's a people of God. The church is not a time, place, or a building. Sure, the church gathers together. The church meets at specific times. The church does certain activities. But what defines the church first and foremost is not a time, event, or activity. What defines the church is a people who are in Jesus, who belong to Jesus, who want to follow Jesus, who are going to go to the places Jesus is sending them. We saw, number two, that to properly define the church, we have to come to see that they exist at a certain time. The church did not exist, if we will, in the Old Testament. There's something unique about the church in this present time and the biblical story that we find ourselves. Number three, we saw the church is empowered by the Spirit of God. In order to be the church, we need some power outside of ourselves, and Jesus has sent that power to us in the form of His spirits. And we define the church as the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And we unpacked that a few weeks ago. Then what we did last week is we went further deeper we started with the identity of the church. Last week we went into the story to show us how we come to that definition. We arrive at that. And today what I want to do is go to the very top of that chart and talk about the actions, about the mission. What should the church be doing? Because we come 
and find ourselves 500 years after this great movement that God did in church history called the Reformation. The Reformation was a time where, in a sense, the, the gospel was recaptured, justification, we're saved, not by our own works, but we're saved by faith in Jesus alone. And there was this great movement that God did, and in the midst of that great movement, we came out of that a couple hundred years later with this idea that the church was a place where things happened. What was the church? They defined it. The church was a place where the Word of God was rightly preached. Should the Word of God be rightly preached at a church gathering? Yes. The church was a place where the sacraments, baptism, and, and um, the Lord's table are rightly administered. And we do that. And the church is a place where church discipline is exercised. And so they began to define the church as a place where these three things happen. Now, I'm not against those three things. But what ended up happening through time, through the Enlightenment, if you're familiar with that, through the Western uh, you know, civilization and Western movement into this area that now we find ourselves of the individual consumeristic reality, church moved to a place, but not just a place where these three things were primary, but church began to move to a place where it became a vendor of religious goods and services. It was a place where they sold religion, okay? And I'm not judging all of their motives. I'm not trying to, like, cast blame on the church. I remember every week I keep asking the question, what does this say about us? I'm, not that I'm not concerned, but I'm not concerned about what's happening out there. But if we're not careful... I think we're going to come to see that inside of us, this individual consumeristic world story worldview, the story that we have grown up in, we are going to actually want that in a church. Remember the stupid illustration I kept using? If you want a computer, what do you do? You find the store that you want to go to, you find the, the brand that you want, the price point that you want, and you buy it, Right? You want clothes, what do you do? You find the place that you want, the price point that you want, the, the, the status symbol that it will give you. If you want tacos, you go where? To the place that you want, that is convenient to where you are at, that is at your price point. And if we want church, guess what we do? We find the one that is our brand, our style, our convenience. Like, if we're not careful, we're going to treat church just like we treat every other aspect of our life. And this is what I'm helping us come to see is that the church cannot be a place where we come and consume. The church cannot be a place where we come and just hear the Word of God preached. Church cannot just be a place where you come and actually take the Lord's table. We need to come and see that the church is a people who have been commissioned by Jesus to continue His mission. This is what the church should be, is a people who have been sent by Jesus on God's mission. And in light of that, let's turn to Acts chapter 1 in your Bibles. And I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, all the way down to verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to just read this together, and then we'll pray. 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, and after his suffering, he presented himself and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Stop. Pause. That statement should give you great hope. He had to keep telling them that he was alive. Okay, any of you doubt Jesus sometimes? And you know what Jesus keeps coming to you? I'm alive. So in your doubt, don't run away. In your doubt, stay. And Jesus will keep showing himself to you. Okay, you're not alone. All right, someone walking out of the grave with a resurrected body that is totally different than the body he had before and a body that will never see corruption and decay. They had to sit there and be like, what's happening? He appeared to them for a period of over 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Uh, how many of you want to do a 40-day kingdom of God training with me? Can you imagine doing it with Jesus? Wouldn't you be like, I get it? <laughs> I mean, 40 days? And you know what? They don't get it. They don't get it. How do I know they don't get it? On one occasion... He was eating with them, and he gave them his command, Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is eating and says, Guys, just wait. You know, there's, the Spirit is coming. Before you go and do this mission that I've told you to do, you need to wait. <clears throat> Verse 6. This is how we don't know they didn't get it. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord... Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you think that topic came up in the 40 days discussion? I personally think it did. But these disciples are so what? Like keyed up on the kingdom coming right now. And Jesus says this, but you will receive power. No, no, he says it's not for you to know the times or the dates or the seasons. The Father is set by His own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after this, He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid Him from their sights. They were looking up intently into the sky as He was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Um, because I've never seen anyone just float up. That's why I'm looking up, right? They said, the same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is not the only place, but it is a great place to characterize the mission of the church, what the church should be doing. And we should come to see this morning that the church is the people of God who exist during this time period through the power of the Spirit to be witnesses. So let's unpack that a little bit together in Acts chapter 1. First of all, Jesus has to, in Acts chapter 1, shift the disciples' perspective from when to how. Remember I said just a minute ago they didn't quite understand the kingdom because they kept asking Jesus, are you going to do it now? Are you going to do it now? And they were concerned about the timing of it, right? When is it going to happen? And Jesus' answer is not, wait 2,000 years and Tim LaHaye will clear it up for you. Jesus' answer is not just shut up, 
And haven't you learned anything yet? What Jesus' response is, is he's going to reorient them to stop thinking about when and to start thinking about how. Stop wondering the timing. Okay, stop worrying if it's 88 reasons in 1988 or if there's a red moon, blood moon coming that he's coming. Stop, in a sense, worrying about the day that he's coming and start thinking about how the kingdom of God is going to come. And how the kingdom of God is going to come is through a people who are going to give witness to the resurrection. So it is not wrong to study Revelation or to try to figure out some things and figure out where we are and all of that. But that is not the, that is not the primary aspect of the church. Revelation is not some code that if we unfigured it out and we did all of these you know, weird diagrams and charts, we'd be like, oh, it's April 6, 19, well, it can't be 19, right? 20, 24. No, we're not going to do that. Because the point is, are we going to be the people of God to actually be how the kingdom of God is going to come on the earth? And Jesus has to say, guys, okay, I, I know you want to know when, and I'm sure he's telling most of us, I'm sure you want to know when. But if we would orient our, line, our lives around not the when, but the how, we are called to be a people who live a certain way, and that is how the kingdom of God is going to come. Number two about this passage is we look at our mission. We need to be concerned about how we're doing it, not necessarily when. Number two, we need to look at this phrase, you will be witnesses very carefully. Because if we're not careful, we're going to take this phrase as a command. Go and witness. Have you heard that before, like that concept? Go and do something. As if like the command for us is to open our mouth and talk about Jesus. Okay, now obviously I think that's part of our commands. But notice something. Does Jesus make a command or does Jesus make a promise? I mean, if you just read it, wait for the Spirit of God, and when He comes upon you, He will do what? Make you my witnesses. That's a promise. This is not something we go and do and try to achieve and try to live up to. It's just something that when the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God, it is a promise that you are now going to be something. You are a witness. How many of you think you're a good witness this week? Will all of you please raise your hand? You know why you are all good witnesses this week? Not because of you, but because the Spirit of God is in you. You are a witness. Like, this is your identity. Jesus comes to the church, his, his reconstituted Israel in a sense, his new Israel, and he says, the Spirit's coming upon you and I'm going to turn you into something. This is not go do. This is be something. And that changes everything. Okay, let's do a thought experiment out loud together. Okay? What difference would it make 
if we believed that we were witnesses as opposed to something we go and do, what difference would that make? Any thoughts or comments out there? No difference? Less stressful? Less stress for sure. Because we can rest in what? We can rest in God's work through the Spirit for us to be something for Jesus, correct? It doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't put effort into it. But when we fail, it's, it's great. And when we succeed, it's all for Jesus. Okay, great. What else? What else difference would that make? Yes, we could stop compartmentalizing our life. So, on the next slide, Bryce hit right where I'm going. Oh, isn't there like a big chart with like lots of people? I hope. There we go. Here's the difference. Most of us have grown up, or I shouldn't say that. If we're not careful, some of us could view our life like this on the left. Who am I as a person? Well, I got my job I got to do. I got my kids. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a spouse. I got my hobbies. I got these social activities. I got this. And, And church life becomes one of the many balls that you're juggling in your life, right? So you got to make time for what? Church. You got to make time for do your finance. You got to make time for your job. You got to make time for your children. You got to make time for your spouse. You got to make time for the million other things that you do. And how many of you made time for all those things this week? And what ends up getting dropped? Certain things. And most of the time, church becomes a ball that we drop. And then we live in this guilt I don't have enough time for church. As opposed to, on the next picture, not making church one of the spokes of my life, one of the categories of my life, but actually the dominating center category of my life by which now I view everything else. That's the difference it makes. Do you think of church as secondary to who you are as a person, that this is my church life and this is my personal life? Or do you look at all of your life that as a parent, you do that as part of the church? As a spouse, you do that viewing it through the lens of being the church. Your finances through the lens of being the church. Like this distinction... That witness is not something you do, but first and foremost, it's something you are, literally will change everything that you do in your life. Jesus doesn't care that you give him Sunday morning and Wednesday nights. He wants all of you. But why do we like the left model? Why do we like that left model? Because I can do my church, and when I'm done, what can we do? Run away from it, and then do whatever I want to do. Like, let's just be honest about it. 
Like, it is sometimes easy in a sense to look at those and be like, oh yeah, I should be the one on the right. But you know why we like the one on the left? Because it's a little bit easier. I don't have to reorient my life always around other people. I can only, do, I can only have to do that a couple times a week. Or I don't have to orient all of my finances around the kingdom of God. I can just give them 10%. And then the other 90%, I get to choose what I want to do with. See, if we're just honest, we like the individual consumer life that we have all grown up with, and the model on the left is a lot easier, a lot neater, a lot cleaner, and a lot happier. And yet, how happy is America? How happy are you really? See, the idea that Jesus wants you to understand is that he is sending the Spirit of God upon his people and he's transforming them into a brand new identity of being witnesses. Now, number three, Jesus wasn't like in, you know, eating with Peter, James, and John and the disciples and was like, man, guys, after 40 days, I still can't figure out a good way to tell you what you're going to be. Ah, bingo, you're witnesses. Like, Jesus didn't just come up with this word, witnesses. Like, you know, another rabbit trail, but, you know, when Jesus calls his disciples the first time and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, remember that little story? You know, he wasn't being punny. Oh, you're fishers, I'll make you fishers of men. Like, that's, why did he say fishers of men? Why did Jesus call these disciples that he's now sending the Spirit of God upon into witnesses? Well, both of those things are Old Testament promises. The reason we don't understand what it means to be a witness is because we're not too familiar with all of these Old Testament passages that Jesus was steeped in. In Isaiah chapter 43, Jesus makes this, or sorry, Isaiah makes this statement. I think I have it on the slide for you. In Isaiah chapter 43, it says this. All the nations are going to gather together and assemble, the peoples assemble. So God is predicting this in the Old Testament when he's going to bring all the nations together. Okay, it's like this courtroom imagery. Everyone's going to come into this courtroom. And he's going to say, which of your gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. So God is like putting all the other gods to the test. He's saying, you know what? All you other nations who worship all these other gods, here's what's going to happen. You bring forth all of your witnesses. You bring forth all the evidence you have. You bring forth every piece of data that you have that your gods actually know the end from the beginning are the supreme God over every other God. He's like, you do that. Bring them. Show me. You, you, you believe in your God so much? All right, you, you come and show all the worlds that your gods are more powerful, more knowledgeable, more glorious than I am. And obviously the implication is what? They can't do that. So God says, I'm going to bring forth all of my witnesses. I'm going to bring forth all of my evidence. Now, if I was God, how would I bring forth all of my evidence to all the world? I'd like just 
snap my finger and make the loudest boom and earthquake and thunder and just like this massive, massive like um, scene where you just like are in utter freak out, right? I mean, if God just snapped his finger and everything just started going crazy, what would you do? Like, okay, you're, you're God, right? We, we begin to freak out. Yet, how is God promising in Isaiah chapter 43 that all the world is going to know there's only one God? How is all the world going to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how is all the world going to know that this God is the only God? Jesus brings on this passage, remembering that in Isaiah chapter 43, that Yahweh says, Israel, one day you are going to be my witnesses. Okay, isn't that ridiculous that God entrusts his name and his fame to his people? It says, it is true, you are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe and understand that I am that God. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses that I am God, yes, and from the ancient of days I am He. What is Jesus doing in Acts chapter 1? He's saying this promise in Isaiah chapter 43 is now being fulfilled where? In the church. The church is now the vehicle by which all the nations are going to know that there is only one God who is from the ancient of days and has all power over all things. And Jesus says, this is the church. You are going to be these witnesses. So the question becomes, how does the church actually show the world that Jesus is God? Well, number four, the church gives witness in the way that they structure their life together. The church gives witness in the way that we structure our life together. So, in our definition, we said that we are witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, And let's just go back for a second into the story that we looked at last week, unpack a little bit of this, and then we'll close with some application, okay? This is not closing, but we're moving to our closing, okay? Just so everyone's clear. Number one, we want to see that the church witnesses to what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. So we've got to ask the question, what did Jesus do in his death and resurrection, And we said last week, based on the story, that Jesus, and I think this is on the screen for us, came and in his death, he conquered the powers of sin, Satan, and death that kept God's people from being who they were made to be. See, God promised Israel in the Old Testament one day that they would be this people, and yet the powers of Satan, sin, and death kept them from being able to be God's true kingdom of priests. 
And so in his death, he defeated Satan and sin and death and those powers that kept God's people from actually being able to be who God always wanted them to be. And what did Jesus do in his resurrection? Jesus in his resurrection launched the new world's whereby God's people will now be able to take His name to the ends of the earth. And I think I have for us a a little chart of circles once again for us. Um, But we come to see in this story that after Adam and Eve sins, the world is now Satan's domain. He is the ruler, he is uh, the authority, and he fills the world with his identity of sin and hatred and murder. And so this is what the world is under Satan's control. And yet then we see that in the death of Jesus, he puts this world, in a sense, to death. He conquers Satan So he no longer is ruling over this world. Jesus is the new ruler. Jesus is taking care of all of our sin so that sin is no longer going to be the dominating thing in this world, but now Jesus' life and righteousness are going to prevail. And so in his crucifixion, he brings Satan's world to a close. And then in his resurrection, on the next slide, we, we have God's new world's. That is being launched. It's here. He walks out of the grave as the first person of this new world, of the new body, of the new earth that is going to come. And Jesus brings that world to us. And right now we exist in the midst of those two worlds. Now church, here's the question. Why in the world didn't Jesus just come and do everything at once? Right? Isn't that, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus just came and took Satan's world away, launched a new world, and everything is all done? Why do these things have to coexist at the same time? Why is there this overlap? Why is Satan's world coming to an end, and why is Jesus' new world beginning? Because when we go back in the story, We see that in Genesis chapter 12 that God promised Abraham that one day who would experience the blessing of God's presence? All the nations. This is not an Israelite blessing. This is a blessing of creation for all of humanity. And if Jesus came back at the very first, when he came the first time and just did away with everything, who would enjoy the new creation? Who? Someone say something. Yeah, only the Israelites, right? And was that God's plan? No, but who is supposed to enjoy all of God's presence in God's new world? All the earth. But you know what? Israel could never live up to being those people because sin, Satan, and death are too strong. And so Jesus, as the true Israelite, comes and destroys those powers and now sends the Spirit of God upon his new people so that the blessing can go to who? You and me. Why is there an overlap of the ages? So that the nations can come to know God. Why does the church exist? For mission. To make God's name known to the worlds. So we are witnesses of this new world. And the way we do it is by the way we structure our life together. On the next slide, this is what God promised Israel. 
that they would one day be a kingdom of priests. They were God's special treasured possession. He chose them out of all the nations of the earth on the left in Exodus 19. And he says, out of all these people, I'm going to use you to be the means by which the world is going to come to know me is through you, Israel. They are like the priests, the mediator, the in-between And the way that the nations would come to Israel to know God is by the way Israel lived their life together. This is what God says, you're a holy nation. He gave them the law, which actually was a law of justice and flourishing for a society. That when Israel obeyed the law, everyone came to Israel to see how in the world do they structure such a righteous and just society. And yet Israel could not keep that. And so what God does when he sends Jesus and he transforms Israel into the witnesses that they're always supposed to be, Peter says this about the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. What am I telling you about this? The way the church structures itself matters. The way you organize your life matters. Because Israel was to organize their life around the law, around the temple. And everything in their life revolved around that, yes or no? Okay? Now, in the new era that we live in, the church organizes its life around the true temple. Who is who? Jesus. We belong to the true temple, Jesus. And we organize our life around Jesus' new law, which is what? Love God by loving one another. The church must be a people who organize their life around Jesus so that they love others. Now, I would love, for in many ways, in my own minds, love God, love others to be two commands. Because we could say at the end of the day, man, I, I really didn't love my kids, I didn't love my spouse, I didn't love my neighbor, I didn't love my missional community, but boy, I love God because I did my Bible reading. That's not how that works. Jesus says, the way that you show you love God is by the way you love your neighbor. And the way you experience God is how? Through God's people. Like, I wonder sometimes, like, we're like, man, God, how come you never, like, show me you love me? He's like, I just gave you the whole church. Go meet with them. But they're a bunch of annoying people. Right. Right. But you know what? I'm going to show up. Because when the church is, where the church is, is where God's love, His presence is. And so the way the church structures itself primarily teaches the people of God what the church is. So if the church, and this is, okay, Now, again, I'm concerned about us, okay? This is not like bash on everyone else. This is us. But if we structured our church around you coming here, like the primary thing we do as a church is you come here on Sunday morning, you come here on Sunday night, you come here on Wednesday night, what are we basically teaching you? 
that the church is what? A place where certain things happen. Is it wrong to meet here three times a week? No, it's not, is it? Churches that meet all the time, that's not wrong. But if we are not careful, we're going to say to ourselves, what is the church? It's the place where we come and we learn and we sit and we sing and we learn and our heads get really big and we go home and do whatever we want. And we don't meet with God's people and we don't have genuine relationships with other people and no one really gets to know us and we don't get to know everyone else because it's just neat and clean. And you know what you show the world when we live that way? That when the new world is here, we're just going to live in our little house, walk out of it and be like, oh, hey guys, and then come back and do my own thing. And you think that's what the new creation is going to be all about? No, because the very thing that you and I want most, relationship, is the thing that we fight against the most. You want deeply to be known and loved by other people. And because we've been hurt by that before, we guard ourselves and we stay in our little houses. But in the new world, there is going to be nothing but love. And you're going to be able to show that love to others and you're going to be able to receive that love from everyone. And when the church shows the world that love, that is the church's primary witness. So notice this as we close. In Acts chapter 2, I have on the screen, and yes, I have five minutes, okay? You have a little assignment. I know, I'm doing this every week because we're going to try to do this every week now, all right, when I try to. But how did the early church structure their life? Okay, now, please hear me say this. I'm not saying when we read this passage and talk about it in a minute, that we have to do exactly this, okay? Like, I don't think this was written for us to be like, you must go to the temple, okay? There is no temple. So, but let's just ask this question. Get in your groups, and I'm going to read this right now, and we're going to ask, okay, what did the early church do to witness in their everyday life together that Jesus is Lord, okay? And here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, Break up into groups around you and just say, ask this question. What rhythms did the early church commit their life to together to demonstrate that Jesus actually walked out of the grave and God's new world is here? What are some of the ways, some of the rhythms that the early church demonstrated that Jesus actually brought the new world? Say again. Family, okay? And how do we, great. And how do we see family lived out in that section? Eating together. Yeah. Good. What else? Or we can, even other things people noticed, or if you want to talk about how we saw, see family, you can do that too. They shared things. Voted themselves to the, the apostles' teachings. And that's not like a systematic, theology. it is, but it's not that. 
the apostles' teachings are, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the true Israelite who came to bring all of God's mission to completion. And now we are his representatives sent out into the world. This is their teaching. They committed themselves to the right story. The right understanding of who they were. Good, what else? Like, if you're not at the temple every day with God's people, are you not a Jesus follower? No, okay? That's not what this passage is saying. But I do think there's a really important principle being highlighted right there. That the people of God were together in their own homes, but the people of God were also where together? Out in the city, out in the neighborhood, out, out in the public life. Like, this is, this is what their life was. It was in to be together, and it was out together. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to be careful. Like, we sometimes glorify this passage too much, in a sense, like, we should be like that. Well, do you know what happens, like, a couple chapters later? Um, people are lying to the disciples about how much money they have donated. Okay? And they're getting struck dead. Okay? Um, people are lying. Uh, uh, Peter is afraid <laughs> of what God is calling him to do, like to go and witness to the Gen- or the Samaritans and the, remember the sheet and the like. Like as you read the story, there's more struggle that happens. There's like this a moment of beginning where there's excitement, and the church. What I'm trying to say is like, yes, it'd be nice if we all lived on this 100 high right here. But I think what what you're getting at is like, well, I don't always live that way, but we should be moving towards one, oneness. Moving towards each other. Moving towards sharing. I mean, I think of it like this, like, you know, even if your long-lost brother um, who you haven't talked to and he's done everything evil in your life has no place to live, what are you going to do? Aren't you going to open up your house to him? Like, that's what the church should be doing. That's our family. That if someone doesn't have a house or someone doesn't have something, even though they're like our long-lost brothers and like they've heard us a million times, we like say, hey, let me help you. So what I want us to catch out of all this is that the early church structured their life around each other, both in their private homes, and outside. They met together to be encouraged, to have the presence of God together, to to grow. But that's not the sum total of what it means to be the church. The church must also be the people together out in everyday life. There's no one way to structure your church that's right. In fact, throughout history, throughout different cultures, different times, there's different ways to do things. I'm not saying there's only one way to structure our church, but I know that for Nate and I and the leaders of this church, that we're trying to figure out ways to structure our life that we can actually be together in our homes and together out in the neighborhood. This is why we do missional communities, not because they're cool, but because it's a space, it's a way that we can structure our life together for each other, for people who don't know Jesus.
Does that make sense? Like, this is what we're trying to do. And this is what we do as being witnesses. So that, why do we fight sin? Every time you fight sin, you're showing yourself, your missional community, and people outside of your missional community that God's new world is here. Because in God's new world, there's going to be no sin. Fighting your sin is missional. It's showing a new world is here. It's not just so you can sleep better at night. We fight each other, we fight each other, we fight with each other for purity, for holiness, for uh, obedience. Why? Because it shows the new world. And that new world is where true joy is found. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org 